Hey there, and welcome back to the Will and Rob Show. It is great to be with y'all. My name is Robert, Ministry Associate and Director of Communications for Ministry to State. And here with me, as always, his Wi-Fi is a little on the fritz, so I can't see his face, but he's with me. Uh, Ministry Associate Will Stockdale. Will, I can't see you, but it's good to be back with you. Yes, it's a voice coming out of the darkness, mm. just emanating from my Zoom name. And also, I was thinking when uh, when you introduced yourself, you know, this is I'm Robert, Ministry Associate, blah, blah, blah. Uh, not to say that what you just said isn't unimportant to blah, blah, blah through it. But um, you did say, Robert, and I wonder, have you ever introduced yourself as Rob? And are there any listeners out there? who were like, gosh, I tuned in for the Will and Rob show, not the Will and Robert show. And people have been just waiting for Rob to show up. Do you think there's any chance that that's happening? Oh, of course. Uh, you know, what's actually funny is almost every single person at any of the two churches I've been members of up here has always called me Rob. No one's really called me Robert, which I've never really tried to initiate. That was, you know, that was just something that happened, which is kind of funny. People do call me Rob, but I almost never go by Rob or call myself Rob in anywhere I am. So do you think, so, so my first name is William, but I go by Will. I wonder if I did go by William, if people would constantly be referring to the shorter version. I mean, this is really getting deep into the weeds of it is. names and their meanings, sociological practices around the phenomenon of naming, <laughs> um, and I'm sure we could competently dive deeply into it and people would be just thrilled oh, of course. to consider our, our everything menu. we talk about is always fascinating. And, uh, uh, the way we say it is always fascinating. scintillating. That's the good word. That's a good word. Um, it is also reformation week. Will happy reformation week. Thank you for wishing that on me. Yeah, we're coming up. So, uh, this episode will release on the 28th Thursday and then on, Sunday, the 31st, we'll be celebrating the 504th anniversary of the Reformation. Yeah, 504 years of uh, the Reformation. Um, we'll just briefly before we have a whole show that we want to talk about. It's kind of related because it's obviously downstream of the Protestant Reformation. Um, but Will, in your uh, uh, Christian life and Christian walk, what is the what has the Reformation meant to you? Yeah. I mean, I think like, that's a fun question to consider just because I think with so many um, historic events that we hear about as kids and then learn more about with time, I think the significance and the meaning of the Reformation has grown with time and understanding not just what it has meant for Christianity, um, but what it has meant for the Western world uh, and the entire world as a whole. The the massive amounts of shifts that have um, taken place post 1517. And I think also just learning more about the history um, around uh, the, the Protestant Reformation is interesting. You know, like Jerusalem fell to Muslim invaders the, in the year preceding the Reformation, which, you know, not only do you have you. Europe and its state, you have things happening in the Holy Land. Um, you have all of these, you have, you have the printing press uh, that has been invented, and you have this, this industry that Luther leveraged to his advantage. 
to disseminate so many of his thoughts. Um, but, you know, you realize two things. Wow, how complicated this was. And it wasn't the simple story of just one man nailing his 95 theses to the door of the Wittenberg castle, uh, church. The, and the other thing is scholars debate whether or not that actually happened. Like, was that just kind of more uh, myth or was that actually the way that this took place? Um, and then that's, um, uh, there's a ton of different factors we together and lastly that god um perfectly orchestrated a context in which this reformation could take off and i don't want to say this uh, in such a way that ignores the complicated history in that um you know it wasn't intended originally to be a separation between within the church but it did lead to that and it did lead to a lot of bloodshed and um uh, sadness. Uh, we were talking to our coworker, Adam, and one of his, uh, he was at, a, um, listening to a lecture and it was a, a Catholic priest who said that, um, um, you know, the, he said the reformation Catholics, many people that Catholics said he knew would consider the reformation a tragic necessity. And he said, the difference is that the Catholic church views it as a tragedy and the, and the reformed church emphasizes the necessity of it. Um, but you know, we can go into a lot of different directions here, but um, yeah, I think it's a, it's a really um, incredible um, moment to think about. And it really did rock the foundations of the Western world and set the Western world off into a trajectory uh, that continues to inform it today. What about you, your, your thoughts and, and uh, just kind of considerations of the reformation? I don't know if you can talk about the Reformation without talking about the five solas. And I just think that over my uh, life and, and time as, as a Christian and a believer and disciple of Jesus Christ, that um, I just, I really appreciate the reformed uh, heritage uh, of, of uh, sola scriptura and um, the elevation of the word um, both in like the liturgy and worship and, and just uh, it's, it's um, daily uh, bearing on our life. And I think for me, when I think about the reformation, I think about, you know, the, the Bible that I have in my hand um, that sits on my bedside table that I've learned to love to read um, and grow closer to. And I think, I think that's really, when I think about the reformation, that's the aspect of it that, um, I tend to focus on, and I think is, you know, you mentioned the, you know, the tragic necessity part of, of the Reformation, and there's certainly so much nuance there to discuss, but I'm just, I'm just unequivocally thankful um, for Martin Luther's and, and a lot of uh, the reformers who came after him and their love and devotion to the word um, and getting the word into the hands of um uh, every Christian everywhere. And I think that to me is the legacy of the Reformation. That's the, that, that's the most worthwhile. We like to talk about discipleship on this show. And I think this will tie into what we, what we have to say about the, the main conversation piece we want to have that um, is important to, to discuss, but we uh, want to talk about discipleship. And one of the um, like anthems mantras of the Reformation was ad fontes, which is to the source. And 
for the Reformation, what was so important was to go back to the original source, to go back to scripture, like you mentioned, sola scriptura, and let that drive predominantly our belief and let that be the measuring rod, the canon measuring read uh, that lets us know if the traditions that we hold to are in fact true and good and helpful. And um, so, and I think for our own lives, as we consider the importance of discipleship, this is one of the reasons why scripture is an essential, is, is, is essential to discipleship, that it is the source inspired by the Holy Spirit, moving in our hearts and minds that we need to go to and sit in and stir in uh, and soak up to allow it to change the way we think uh, and see everything around us. Um, and so, you know, you mentioned being able to have your Bible. Yeah. I mean, being able to have my Bible um, with me, be encouraged to interpret it. Um, and then, you know, uh, the, the emphasis on the, the good news, the mm-hmm. emphasis from Luther on the gospel. I mean, the Luther was arguably the first evangelical. He was the first one who was centering on this good news. Uh, he somewhat famously said that the doctrine of justification is the doctrine on which the church stands or falls. I think in some sense, we could say that's a little bit too much weight to put on any one doctrine because there are other doctrines that we need. Um, but, you know, in the, in the midst of our 2021 context, all the political sociological realities, um, it's good to be remember as we consider Reformation Day, just what being an evangelical meant originally and for a very, very long time, hundreds of years afterwards, uh, and has really only recently been morphed into something else, but that it is a theological idea, not a sociological one. Um, well, that's, that's kind of a perfect segue, uh, Will, to what we want to talk about uh, on today's episode, which is evangelicalism as it stands today particularly in context of a um, article that came out uh, over the weekend, I believe, in The Atlantic by uh, uh, Peter Weiner. Uh, uh, Peter Weiner, uh, for those of uh, people who don't know, uh, he's with the Ethics and Public Policy Center. Um, and he, I believe he worked, Will, if this is right, he worked in the Bush administration. Is that right? Correct. Yeah. And so he's a, he is a um, kind of a great interlocutor uh, for this podcast, because P- Peter Weiner, you know, swims in the same waters as we do, um, uh, you know, living out the Christian faith in the context of Washington D.C. and politics, um, and what it means for uh, engagement with, in the public square and with culture. And so, um, his pieces are important to read uh, for that reason. Uh, and I think this this article in particular stuck stuck out to us because we'll get into some of the criticisms I think we have of it, or maybe the, some of the thoughts we had while reading it. Uh, but one thing that Peter Weiner does in this piece, which um, uh, I think is significant and why I think it got the, the amount of attention that it did over the weekend, which is he seems to try to um, draw all the different strings together. Um, the, the discussion of evangelicalism since the 2016 election um, has had many different facets to it. Um, you have the, uh, you know, uh, what's going on uh, in terms of evangelical voting, 
what's going on with its um, supposed uh, affiliation with Donald Trump, a man who seems not to be evangelical at all. Uh, what's going on on so, uh, political and cultural and social issues, and then like diagnosing it. And so, you know, you have something like uh, Jesus and John Wayne, which has made a lot of uh, uh, headway uh, in, in evangelical circles, you know, Samuel Perry's and Greg Whitehead's uh, taking America back for God and its, its context of Christian nationalism. And then at the same time, you have sort of uh, the the local cases, right? He, Peter Winters points to McLean Bible Church, for example, as a church that sort of exemplifies this friction that's going on, or maybe this this division that's going on uh, between you know, more conservative uh, uh, congregants and and what they perceive to be more liberal congregants, and vice versa. And I think what he does a very what he does do a good job is pointing out that you know we all sort of recognize that there's some sort of anxiety or angst going on here. We just need to know what it is. Um, and so I guess with that framing, Will, I'll kind of just punt it over to you in terms of when you saw it, what you were re when you read it and kind of how you put it in context with how with what you understand is sort of going on within broader evangelicalism. Because I know you've been thinking about this more almost historically as, as evangelicalism as a word and how it's been used or um, how people have identified with it uh, historically. Yeah. I, and um, I don't think Peter Weiner uh, is as interested in historical definition in this article. Um, I, I think one of my biggest frustrations is we have allowed this term to be used by pollsters and pundits to identify a certain group of people um, in such a way that it completely devoids the word of its theological meaning that is so essential to it. Uh, and it has just kind of snowballed uh, evangelicals are not without fault in this. And I think one of the things that Wayner does that is helpful is he does point to a lot of issues that are very real and prevalent amongst people who identify as evangelicals. Um, and I think one of the big ones you mentioned angst here. And one of them is that you get people, I mean, you get, you get, you're either, you're either too woke or you're, you're too, right wing um a pastor is one of the other he's not doing these pastors are never doing enough it seems according to their congregants combating one or the other i mean it is just the big thing and i think one thing's that that um you know Wainer goes and interviews probably 15 people for this article maybe more uh but one of the things that he identifies it seems is that people's primarily primary concerns are not uh, the truth once for all delivered to the saints. Mm. That doesn't actually seem to be the primary uh, purpose of church. It seems to be saving society from some evil, whether it is uh, QAnon or uh, communism. I don't, maybe the alliteration works there, um, <laughs> but you know, those are kind of the, the, the two big ones. And um, you know, he mentions uh you know, the sad situation that happened at McLean Bible. I don't know all the details there. I've heard Platt's talk on that, you know, I don't, but I don't know all the inside information. He talks about how Beth Moore and Russell Moore, you know, Russell Moore is one of the most brilliant people in Christianity right now, thinking and writing, and he deserves the benefit of the doubt from us and how he addresses things. Uh, and he's been mistreated, I think, pretty badly. D disagree with him all we want, but like, uh, he, he's definitely a man of integrity. And then I think, um, 
Yeah, I th- there there is a a sense in which Christians have uh, or congregations have identified one particular thing as the most important social issue of the day, and therefore is the most important issue for the church to face. Um, kind of skipping over a lot of the theological steps that need to be there in order to get to a right biblical God honoring conclusion. And then Wayner also points out that uh, a lot of the tactics that are used, and this is on both sides of the aisle, uh, in the in the pews, we should say, uh, adopt a lot of the worst, um, a lot of the worst tactics um, from the culture at large. Yeah, I think I think you're right about that. I think that um, what what's interesting in uh, Peter Wainer's piece. And I think, I think it fits within a broader genre of um, think pieces about evangelicalism that have happened, you know, they've become most prevalent to me in sort of the post 2016 era, but, you know, I see people talking about it as if this has been something that's been happening since, you know, the Reagan years, uh, which is this, you know, kind of compulsion to uh, internally gatekeep uh, and so th- there is this overwhelming desire within evangelicalism to be doing a lot of gatekeeping um, and rather than maybe necessarily deal with issues or forces outside uh, quote unquote evangelicalism. And so th- this piece really, I think, fits within that genre really well. Um, he's, he's mostly writing to evangelicals. Uh, he's expressing a, a concern of a certain group of evangelicals. Um, particularly, I think, evangelicals that represent um, the sort of heavy hitters within evangelicalism, you know, uh, places, you know, people like Russell Moore and Beth Moore. Uh, I think Tim Keller uh, gets a quote in there. Um, You know, so in that sense, it's it's a it's an act of gatekeeping. Um, And so inevitably, it's going to cause it's going to cause friction or, or anxiety because Obviously, there's another whole segment of evangelicalism that would not agree with Peter Weiner, with in his assessment. Um, and I think, I think really to get to the crux at um, my questions or concerns about a piece like this is already in the title. And I, I guess I want to ask you this question: like, what, what does it mean to say the evangelical church? What? Are those is evangelical and church? Can those two words really do those words really belong together? And then I guess you know. I and again we have to be very clear. I, I'm not. I'm not. I know. Understand that. I understand that authors don't often get to pick their their titles and bylines or in their um, subtitles. But then this like Christians must reclaim Jesus from his church. What do you What do you make of that, Will? The subtitle, yeah. I mean, we both thought the same thing. I touched another friend who felt the same way. And look, Peter Weiner knows his theology. This guy's a very smart guy. He's very involved in his church. Um, I'm not. I'm not going to point the finger at him and say this was his fault. Only that the subtitle is theologically incoherent. Um, it actually doesn't make any sense. One of the images we're given to understand the church is that it is the body of Christ. And so for Christians who are the church, that is the body of Christ, somehow for them to step outside the church, to rescue it, um, it it's, I, I imagine trying to put that in a theological paper in a seminary and having my professor kind of scratch his head, being like, I don't think this is theologically uh, 
sensible in any way. So I, yeah, the title, um, it, it, I think does something to maybe, um, promote a confusion about just what the church is and what the Christian's role in it is and how we belong to her. Um, and then, uh, you mentioned evangelical church, those terms belong together. I mean, historically there were Bebbington, who's a historian, uh, has, has cited four key markers of, um, evangelicalism. One is the need for conversion. Um, another is, uh, crucicentrism. So the centrality of the cross and the work of redemption. Another is the, uh, biblocentrism. So, so centrality of scripture. And another one is activism. Hmm. Um, and that activism, a lot of it was, it, it took on different shapes. One of them was missionary ventures. And so sending missions around the world, a ton of that happened with, in the 18th century when evangelicalism first started. Uh, but another was, was social causes. And this happened both in Europe and in America, where you get um, fighting slavery, abolition, good stuff. Um, you also get in America uh, fights for social reform, uh, a prohibition movement uh, was one of them. And, and I think because of the activist nature, the missions and the social causes, that is really what caused the evangelical church to be interdenominational in that to work together on these causes as, as unified evangelicals required um, this kind of, okay, what do we share in common that allows us to work on this cause together? And, and it was that the evangelical belief. So evangelical church, I mean, it's almost like a nexus uh, where it's kind of this people who belong for different denominations share this overlap or maybe a Venn diagram or something. But I mean, I, I think it's, I think it's fine. I mean, but it is, it is at the very, it is an informal church, if anything, and and it is a non-institutional uh, church as well, which is a criticism, not a crit, but an observation Keller makes about evangelicalism is that it is, uh, it's not institutional how, but in the American context, after the Revolutionary War and the huge shift pivoted to liberty, 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 that was the big push for Christians in America. Um, institutions could be seen things that got in the way and interfered with uh, the autonomous Christian. Um, so in, in America, it is more lacking institution than it is in on the continent. Yeah, that's a, I, I noticed the same thing that that killer pointed out about sort of the, the institutional question, um, a particular book that I've turned to, uh, in order to really understand this question, uh, about evangelicalism, because it's been something that's sort of been rattling in my head for a while, um, is, uh, DG Hart's book, deconstructing evangelicalism. And I mean, he's writing about this stuff in 2004. So, you know, in some ways it's, it's quite prophetic in that I think he, he diagnoses well, sort of this in the moment that we're in today. And he makes that exact same point that you just brought up that, um, uh, that the movement neo-evangelical leaders patched together ended up splintering because it lacked the discipline and rigor of the church. Of course, the aim of evangelicalism was to find a lowest common denominator faith that would take members from diverse denominations and independent congregations and stitch them together into a recognizable quilt. It was, as John R. Stone has rightly observed, a work of coalition building. 
Um, and I think, I think that's really important point, at least for me, as I think about what's going on in evangelicalism. I mean, I, I understand and I hear everything that, you know, you say and what people say about sort of the theological underpinnings of evangelicalism. And I would never, I would never discount any of that uh, in the historical sense, but at least from in my lifetime, and as I've witnessed evangelicalism, it seems to me that um, a lot of the, the source of a lot of the anxiety around evangelicalism is that it's, it, it's insisted upon that it is a theological movement still um, when really, at least in my point of view, at least from my per, per, uh, perception, it's, it's mostly a sociological movement. Uh, a, a coalition in order to do that last part, what you talked about, activism, or what we might say today, like um, a coalition to win office and, 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 you know, reform society in a certain way that, that, you know, conservative Christians or conservative Protestants want to see. And I, I think that I, I think that I'm kind of vindicated in that uh, when I look at polling data, you brought up polling, you know, you, you look at some of the polling questions and the answers and you have to really wonder, uh, are we dealing with uh, uh, um, Orthodox Protestants? Or are we dealing with conservative evangelicals? Uh, well, you have, it seems like you have a, you have a disagreement here. No, I, uh, because I have my, my screen off, you can't see my face. I can't see you pounding on the desk and insisting that you get data, a word Oh man, I am, I'm livid over here. No, I, I do disagree with you on that point, but I want to hear you finish, finish yours. I, I didn't mean to interrupt you by typing you. The wonderful chat feature within Zoom has interrupted Robert's chain of thought, but I do want to hear what you have to say because you said you feel vindicated based on some polling data uh, that you saw. Yeah. In the New York times uh, the other day, there was a piece that sort of was talking about evangelicalism and uh one thing that I thought was really interesting uh, was that um, at least in the polling, uh, it seems that there isn't a lot of theological coherence. Uh, in fact, I'm quoting now, in fact, there's evidence that the share of members of the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, Orthodox Christianity, and Hinduism who identify as quote evangelical is larger today than it was a decade ago. Um, for another here, here's another quote. For instance, half of Muslims who attend services at a mosque more than once a week align with the GOP self-identity, with the GOP self-identify as evangelical. Um, and so the conclusion being, uh, just because they say they are evangelical, it doesn't necessarily even believe they believe in the divinity of Jesus Christ. And so I, I think there, there is, at least now, evangelicalism seems to suggest something more like religious conservative, um, you know, even like 10 years ago, you could have probably limited that to sort of, you know, conservative Christians, but, you know, based on this piece from the New York times, I think it's, you could even maybe say that evangelicalism broadly represents more just, cons you know, cons religious conservatives. Um, and so if that's what it is, if you can have as people as disparate as Presbyterians, Baptists, um, uh, non-denominational, Pentecostal, uh, Roman Catholics, Mormons, Hindus, and uh, Muslims all agreeing on this term, I'm evangelical, then I have to really wonder, is this a theological 
uh, definite a word or is it a sociological one? Does that make sense? Yeah, I think um, I think where I would, I would disagree with you in, uh, in one area, but I think it, so much of this, what is the meaning of evangelical depends on who you ask. I mean, if you're asking uh, someone who's doing a poll, someone who's doing a political poll around election time, it is going to have to do much, much more with this um, a socioeconomic, a sociopolitical uh, um, lens and a definition that uh, gives gives the kind of thing that you're seeing in the New York Times. I do think, though, that it still does very much so have theological roots and and, um, and that it does have theological meaning, um, which is what I think points to the situation. If it if it didn't mean anything theological, essentially, but is being ignored, then there wouldn't be any frustration about the way that people throw around the term and use it so loosely. Like if, if, if people were doing this, like put in Bebbington's four um, criteria, then I think that uh, we would avoid a lot of these issues and problems. The other side is this evangelical is not a, the term evangelical is not essential to the, for the Christian faith to continue. It is not essential for the church's mission to go forth. Um, we can lose the term evangelical. We'll maybe replace it with something else that kind of breathes, a, opens the windows and lets the fresh sea breeze blow in that maybe gives people a pause because the term has become so latent um, with confusion and misunderstanding and um, a lack of theological depth. Yeah, um, yeah. And I, and also I think it's interesting Hart mentioned the lowest common denominator about uh, the Christian faith, which I don't know how that works because you have like people like C.S. Lewis, for example, or T.S. Eliot who were Anglicans and they were Christians, but they wouldn't have identified themselves as evangelical. So if it is a lowest common denominator, then every, like, um, wouldn't like Every Christian was an evangelical, but not. Well, I think the that's a good observation. I think what it has to do with, you know, at least from what I can tell, I'm not a I'm not a religious historian, so I could be completely misinterpreting the history here. But it just seems to me that in in denominations like Anglicanism, Lutheranism is another one. There's more of a priority uh, placed on denominational identity over and above evangelical identity, if that makes sense. So like Anglicans will show up for things like March for Life, but I don't think Anglicans self-identify as evangelical as quickly or as primarily as, you know, um, Christians in Baptist, non-denominational, Pentecostal denominations do. It's just it's a different thing. And obviously Lutheranism, because it's so tied, I think, to the, the German ethnic church, uh, it very similarly um, uh, not resists, but it just it's more inoculated against the sort of evangelical movement, whereas um, uh, more independent congregational churches, uh, I think, maybe are more um, they just more easily slide into that sort of model. I could be totally wrong. That's a, that's a, that's a total um, uh, personal opinion and interpretation of what I kind of see going on. But I, I wonder if that's part of it. 
Um, because I see, you know, I go to, you know, big quote unquote evangelical events, right? Like think of things like March for life and, you know, there's a lot of different people, you know, uh, Christian groups there. Um, but I don't, you know, when I, that are at March, things like March for life, but like when I read a Peter Wainer piece or, a, or, a, um, uh, a, a David French piece, you know, it's, it's the same, you know, it's always non-denominational Baptist Presbyterian pastors who get interviewed. Like you don't really see, you know, here's pastors, you know, so-and-so Lutheran from, you know, in Nebraska, they just never really seem to get in there. And I wonder if it's because they just don't have the same uh, affiliation with evangelicalism because of their denominational priorities. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. Um, and so I do think that the, the common, the, the, not to sort of hit on this more, but I, I do wonder if because of the, the lowest common denominator thing, um, because, you know, those are very important theological points for sure, but it's a very, it's a very minimalist vision of Christian doctrine. Obviously there are just so many more things that can be said about Christian doctrine. And that's where you really get into that. That's what differentiates Lutherans from Presbyterians and Presbyterians from, you know, reformed church. And then, you know, us from Baptists and, and by, and, you know, goes, goes on down the line. But what what's interesting, and I, I want to bring this back to that gatekeeping point that I made, which is that, uh, and this is what what Hart says, and I, I want to get your opinion on it because we've sort of been talking about it. Um, in effect, the creation of a core set of common beliefs was similar to the liberal attempt to separate the kernel from the husk of the Bible. The study that follows could lead to the rather disconcerting conclusion then that for mere Christianity to survive, wise and constant diligence needs to be directed to a co as complete a reflection on biblical truth as possible. In other words, to preserve the minimum, you need to defend the maximum. And so I think what is going on here, and Hart's getting at, which is that a bunch of evangelicals disagreed about who to vote for in 2016. And they continue to disagree about what are sort of the biblical ways to handle you know, these issues, these complicated issues, race relations, abortion, um, uh, economics and family policy. And because, uh, it's primarily seen as a theological project when two evangelicals disagree, it then becomes a fight over theology about whose, whose theology is better used to defend their preferred policy. If that makes sense, instead of saying, this is mostly a sociological project. We know that we're all orthodox on these, these, these points. We just, because of our denominational heritage, our theological heritage, we just disagree about what's the best way to do these two, you know, to pursue this thing that we believe is, is biblical. And so what ends up happening is we turn, you know, trade policy into a gospel issue. That's how it gets like maximized um, where what what might cure a lot of this or temper a lot of this angst is if we were to say, you know, look, this is what we believe. This is what the the biblical principles of economics and, and property and generosity and charity. Therefore, let's take those principles and apply them uh, uh, into policy. And then we might be able to be a little bit more uh, 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 welcoming of different opinions and dissent. 
do you, what do you make of that thesis? Do you think that that's, that's sky in the pie optimism? Do you think we're past that point or do you think I'm just completely wrong here? Um, you know, I, I think there has been a, a needed shift in evangelicalism since the nineties or Christianity that went from like heavy, heavy orthodoxy to heavy, heavy orthopraxy. Mm. Um, and so from right belief to right practice and so many of the books or conversations or seminars are not so much about the inerrancy of scripture or the inspiration of scripture or the Holy spirit, but about how do I live my faith out in the public sphere? And that's, that's good. I mean, that's, that's been a needed adjustment. Um, I'm not sure how much further down that path we can go before needing to make another turn. And then of course, we'll need to make another turn in years. Um, but so for example, there's a poll where it was 71% of, uh, young men and women care about LGBTQ rights. That's something that they care about. Okay. That um, the church responds to that. Um, and I think that is a reflection of a, a world that is super, super em emphasized on like, what have you done lately? What activity, what activist movement have you made lately for something? And um, I think as we continue down this road, we're going to need to get back to reemphasizing the um, orthodoxy, which I think can help with, um, you know, and, and it's interesting, I guess, um, part of this movement towards activism with the gospel is that everything became a gospel issue for like 10 years. And that still kind of is happening. So, um, you know, justice is a gospel issue. Okay. I mean, sure. Marriage is a gospel issue, uh, family, um, economic, like all these things have become uh, gospel issues. And, it starts to kind of uh, um, minimize like, or make it so broad that it minimizes, it seems, or sucks out the actual power of the gospel when we state it uh, clearly and concisely. And so, you know, with Wainer's piece, I, I think while, you know, I'm thankful for him and he's writing in the Atlantic who he's, a lot of people reading this article, a friend pointed this out to me yesterday, you know, a lot of people reading this article have no understanding of christianity at all <laughs> and peter wainer is probably the closest thing a lot of people are going to read to like a theology text and in that sense i can be really grateful because the people that he cited are good christian men and women like he if they start googling those people they're going to find some really cool stuff about them um i, I i'm not a big fan of this heavy hit blast christian blast evangelicalism uh, american evangelical i think that that is getting a little tired to me i think that that is becoming unhelpful um but again, it, it, I got to remember his audience here because that there's an audience that he's writing to that I need to keep in the forefront of my mind. And the other is I just don't, there wasn't a really helpful solution to any of this. He pointed mm. out a lot of what was wrong and what failed, but there wasn't this like, and, and, and he knows this. I mean, I know he knows this. Maybe he just wasn't allowed to say it, you know, um, give him the benefit of the doubt. But um, look, the answer is biblical truth, confessional, biblically based Christianity that comes to people's lives and is, is they're cultivated and shaped and formed through discipleship, through close relationship, through learning to work out their faith. All these concerns of this fracturing that we see is not going to be fixed at a conference. It's not going to be fixed at a single worship service. It is a long obedience in the same direction, a patient, patient trotting step after step after step um, of Christians helping other Christians work out their faith. Um, and that means, among other things, when people are, 
reading trash, you tell them, Hey, that's, that's not good for you. Um, <laughs> when people haven't been to church in a while, we say, Hey, maybe we should go to church together. Um, I think there are, there are answers here. Uh, because I mean, truthfully, true evangelical Christianity is a big threat to the, uh, the big powers that be in the world that have no interest in Jesus being King. Mm. So kind of the beautiful thing is that when true Christianity comes out, no one's going to be happy um, because it, because it threatens everybody's priors. Mm. That's really well said. I totally agree. I think that what you're kind of getting at is, is catechesis and, and, to his credit, I think Wayner points that out is that uh, one of the where one of the places where we've where the church has failed. Again, I I you know I have um, take I take issue with the idea of the evangelical church. I don't know if that necessarily exists the way he thinks it does, um, but uh, certainly Christians are not being uh, catechized well. Um, uh, you know. I, you can always go read those polls. Ligonier has one. Uh, DG Hart talks about one in here where it's like, you know, you can poll people uh, who self-identify as evangelical and, you know, 99% will say Jesus is Lord or, you know, Jesus was fully man and fully God. And then, you know, they'll ask, uh, uh, is man sinful? And be like, well, and you get like 40%. And, you know, you'll get these sort of very important, you know, basic points of, of Christianity and there's always this wide discrepancy about, you know, do people really know what they're confessing? And I think catechesis is definitely part of that solution. I would just sort of want to point out um, that I do think that uh, leaning more into the denominational heritage that you affiliate with, the one that's been handed down to you, um, really mining the depths of, of that heritage and, and finding out, you know, what has, what have Christians in my tradition in my denomination believed about a lot of these things and really going into those stuff, I think is just going to be more fruitful than sort of finding, you know, those very um, uh, lowest common denominator uh, 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 fillers. I, I just, I, I would encourage people, you know, as they think about, you know, how am I uh, engaging uh, in the public square as a Christian, as an evangelical um, I do think that I would, I, I would encourage people like, lean more into your denomination um, or do some research about denominations, because I think you might find something uh, that institution that Tim Keller is really starting, you know, trying to push people to, I think you'll find that um, expressed really well within denominations and can be very, very helpful as we think about this question. Yeah, well said. I think that's a good place to land. I, I would just encourage people to um, to read the article, see what you see what you think. Go to the Atlantic, take a look at it. Um, again, you know, we have we think there's good stuff and not so good stuff in there. There's some some great people that are referenced and some uh, and some good ideas conveyed. Um, but and I guess I'll say this as we're talking about institutions, we're talking about churches and we mentioned the stress that pastors are under um, be praying for your pastor. Mm. Uh, they are getting, they are getting slammed on both sides of every issue all the time. And I don't know every pastor out there. Of course, most of us, most pastors want to do the right thing and they want to follow God and honor him. Um, 
And so it can just be tiring. So we would, I think, just encourage you as you think about evangelicalism and its state and the relation of Christians to the church uh, as Jesus is the head, that prayer for your pastor is just so important um, and remember them and, um, and be excited for worship on Sunday. You know, I think, I think that goes a long way when Christians show up excited to worship. Amen to that. I would, I would absolutely second that. Um, but obviously, you know, like Will said, you know, we, we're interested in what y'all think. Um, I know a lot of people have had very different experiences within evangelicalism. Uh, there's already very um, different experiences within Christianity on, on just between the two of us on, on this podcast. And uh, we know when we interact with others, those that are coming to our Bible studies and that we work with, um, they have different experiences. And so it's always good to just sort of collect those stories. And I think it, it illuminate, illuminates a lot of these uh, questions for us. So um, you can send us in an email. Uh, sort of your thoughts about the piece, what you what you thought of uh, some of the the points or takeaways that you had after it. You can email that uh, to us. We might uh, even engage with it on the, on air next episode. Uh, you can email those to Will and Rob Show at ministrytostate.org, um, or you can uh, DM us on Twitter. I'm at RD Hassler. Will is at Stockdale Will. Um, as always. Make sure to check out ministryestate.org. Will, you had a great devotional that came out this week about encountering Jesus that I would encourage everybody to go check out. Uh, And as always, uh, we'll see you guys again next week.